The Southern Cowboy Podcast is brought to you by Panther Creek Ranch, where we play, learn, and grow. Panther Creek Ranch encompasses nearly 4,000 acres in North Mississippi and boasts a multidisciplinary equestrian stables, summer camp, working cattle operation, a diverse farm education program, and a new equine therapy center. Just 30 minutes from metropolitan Memphis, Panther Creek is your respite to return to your love for horses, the outdoors, and the land. Come see us and experience a taste of big sky country right here in the Mid-South. Email info at panthercreekstables.com or call 662-912-5440 today. Welcome to the Southern Cowboy Podcast. I'm J.B. Farrell. Having been involved in the horse and cowboy world most of my life, I've been fortunate to meet some really cool people with some great stories to tell. And now I want to bring those stories to you. I started this podcast wanting to tell the stories of the cowboys and cowgirls having an impact on the Western world right here in the South. While the majority of the cowboy world is focused out West, I wanted to shine a spotlight on our neck of the woods. So pour a cup of coffee, sit back, and let's get into it. Alrighty, welcome to the first episode of the Southern Cowboy Podcast. I'm excited to finally be kicking this thing off. I've got a great first guest in studio today, my good friend Tommy Neargaard. Tommy is a saddle maker, saddle repair, all-around leather craftsman. He lives right outside Hernando, Mississippi. He recently retired from his regular job and is now full-time in the saddle shop. Tommy is actually one of the first people I talked to about the idea for this podcast. It just stemmed from our conversations hanging out in his saddle shop. He thought it was a great idea, so I said, great, you'll be my first guest. So now here we are. Tommy, it's great to have you. Thanks for having me. Let's just start from the beginning. I know you grew up in Mississippi in the farming and ranching world. Let's talk a little bit about that and then ultimately what led you into saddle making and leather work. Wow, uh, where do you start? Um, I grew up um, in the 60s, the 70s. Um, my family's always been in the ranching and horse business. and uh, My dad was a farm manager his whole life. and We moved around to different places in Mississippi and Tennessee and uh, the rural lifestyle is is what we did back then you know i've always had horses and and always enjoyed working with my hands and it's just uh it's been my whole life working around horses and cattle and other jobs that i've had through the years all goes back to somebody i knew that had horses you know so um that's what we did back then and I remember you, just when we were talking earlier, you said y'all at one point had a big place down in, where's it, Vaden, Mississippi? My, my dad was a ranch manager, and uh, we, we had, a, oh, in the late 60s, early 70s, we had over 10,000 head of cattle. Um, we had um, lots of horses. My dad always furnished the horses everywhere we went, and I have three older brothers, and and we were free labor, so uh, <laughs> when we weren't in school, we were... Riding horses, checking cattle, moving cattle, moving pastures, calving, weaning. You know, we uh, dad had a bunkhouse with other cowboys, and I grew up with cowboys, and that, that's all I knew back then. That, that's awesome. Uh, so what what was it then that kind of really sparked your interest in wanting to get into saddle making and leather work? You know, I, I, I don't really know. I always liked working with my hands, uh, always was good at it. it. It came easy, you know, riding horses and training horses always came easy for me for some reason. Uh, 
started training outside horses when I was, you know, still in high school. And, uh, of course, that leads into rodeoing and, and team roping. Team roping has been my passion for 40 years. You know, I, I've been roping since I was 16. And um, was always good with my hands. And, and my, my dad always had horse magazines around. And, and uh, there was always an article back in the when I was growing up on how to make something and and I would just try to make it. It didn't matter if it was a rope halter or bull ropes or saddles. Uh, I, I've made a little bit of everything over the years and it, it was always fun for me and I never got tired of it. And um, this is my 26th year to actually be making saddles and uh, I, I never get tired of it. Uh, those early things, were you making to sell them? Were you making just for yourself or a little bit of both? I was making it for myself just to see if I could do it, and uh, I got to where I would sell a few things. Um, you know, I probably sold my first bull rope when I was 12, 13 years old. I was making bull ropes. And, uh, now, were you riding bulls at all at that time, or was it just, oh, I can make this, I'll see what I can do with it? In high school, we, we I rode bulls. Mm -hmm. and, uh, my brother rode bulls and rode saddle broncs, and... Having three older brothers, you actually, you always kind of follow what they're doing, you know, because you look up to your brothers. And, and uh, so in high school, I rode bulls and rode saddle broncs and uh, rope calves. And uh, team roping came later. Um, I remember when team you can, roping. You can team rope a lot longer than you can ride bulls. Yes, yeah, yeah, you, you uh, I still get the team rope, but, you know, and uh, it's not as hard on your body as riding bulls. Um, I didn't ride bulls long. I got hurt. Several times, and uh, I figured out it was a whole lot more fun just to team rope. So, so growing up in the the horse and cattle world like you did, the, you know, your dad moving from ranch to ranch. Are there any just really standout stories that stick out in your mind of having a big impact on you or anything like that? Well, we didn't know. You know, this is just what back in the '60s. That's what you did. You know, you you were outside. You were riding horses and. Um, I went to college on a rodeo scholarship. Um, found out pretty quick that uh, I didn't want to rodeo for a living because it didn't pay a whole lot. So uh, got into training horses for a long time. Uh, I rode horses uh, for about 10 years for one one particular uh, people here in town. And we got to show, we got to travel. I traveled all over the U.S. showing horses. Um, Showed competitively at the World Show, at the AQHA World Show. Showed at the Congress. Uh, got to meet lots of interesting people along the way, and got to see lots of saddles. Uh, every time we would go somewhere, I would look at saddles, you know. And it just—it um, it sounds crazy, but but I was a saddle freak, you know. And I, I wanted to look at saddles, and and that led into making saddles. And and then as I got better at it, I, it was a way I could stay at home and, and make saddles and not be out running the road showing horses and riding horses and riding horses in the wintertime is no fun. So, so the saddle making started taking priority and uh, it's just has, hasn't stopped since then. What, what was your early influences? Were there any, anybody you were kind of having mentor you in it or how did you start teaching yourself? What was... Well, I, there was actually a saddle company here in town, and um, I hired on there to do the repairs. And, of course, I thought I knew something, and when I got there, I didn't know a whole lot. 
So uh, they were very uh, willing to teach me, and uh, there was some master saddle makers there that I'm still friends with today, and um, they have retired and trying to slow down. And um, I, I worked for the saddle company for nine years. I did repairs. I actually made trees there toward the end. Um, tree making was was real interesting. I really enjoyed that part of it. Um, as you know, the base of a saddle is made out of wood, and then you cover that wood with some kind of covering. There's lots of lots of different coverings nowadays. You can do fiberglass, you can do rawhide, you can do what they call a rhino lining. They have Kevlar lining now that they put on trees. Um, when the tree is really where your saddle fit comes into play. Correct, correct. The bottom of the saddle is made for the horse. The top of the saddle is made for you. So it's just like everything else, it's changing, it's getting more high tech, uh, they're using better materials, but it still goes back to leather. You know, you, it's all about leather. Leather's been around since mankind started. You know, they were tanning hides and, and uh, using leather since the beginning of man, I think. Um, and leather is a real interesting product. If you take care of it and you oil it, it will last forever. It's, it's one of the great things about just the cowboy world and this trade is there's so many things that are going so modern, but they they hadn't quite figured out how to find anything that will work a cow better than a horse, and they hadn't found anything that really sits on the back of a horse better than a leather-made saddle. Right, right. You know, the cowboy lifestyle is, is still alive, still doing well. It's still here. Um, you know, the average person might not get to see a cowboy, but... Uh, What's the old Chris Ledoux song? You just can't see him from the road? That's correct. <laughs> so, But, you know, um, cattle and leather and cowboys will be around forever. We need them. We cannot do this world without them. And, and uh, I tell my friends to eat more beef because I need leather. <laughs> well, what all have you got going on in the shop nowadays? Is it is it mostly custom saddles that you're doing for people? Is it mostly repairs? What's what's day-to-day life like in the shop right now? I really enjoy doing the repairs, uh, and it's been a big part of my life for the last 25 years. But recently retired from an outside job, I call it. Uh, and um, so I've been making a few custom saddles. Uh, it's something I always wanted to do. Um, uh, through my years of riding horses and traveling and meeting some of the top trainers in the world. I've uh, put all that knowledge, you know, down on a piece of leather. And um, I don't want to make a hundred a year, but I I do want to make a few. Um, My shop is 20 steps from the back door. Um, I I get out there every day at 6.30 and start working on saddles, and it has not become boring. It's not a job. It's just something that I do. And I got my horses in the backyard, and life is good. So you, you said it's mostly repairs that you're doing. And, I mean, I know I certainly dropped my share of saddles off with you. Uh, I knew when, when I found out you were going to be moving so close to me, I was kind of worried how much money I might end up spending with you being that close by, whether I'm constantly dropping saddles off with you or, you know, having you make a head stall or whatever else I come up with. But it hadn't been too bad so far. Mostly we end up just hanging out and talking. But uh, 
I I guess the the repairs and then how often are you having people come in saying, "Hey, make me you know some headstalls. I want want this done." Or I mean, you've made dog collars. You make just about anything somebody can come up with with leather. You'll you'll try to make it for them, whether it's right. horse related or not. Right. right. Well, we're we are a custom shop, so we make onesies and twosies. Is about all we make. Um, you know, when I worked in the saddle factory, we were making. 40 saddles a day at some sometimes uh, that's a lot uh, so now I'm a I'm a onesie twosie type operation um, I do a lot of English repair um, I'm one of the only ones in this part of the world that does English repair and and uh, it's a change of pace from just doing regular saddles and, and um, but I like the cowboy stuff I like the cowboy tack uh, I like the heavy duty leather the the um, heavy-duty head stalls and reins. Uh, it's what I call cowboy tack, and uh, that's what I enjoy the most. But um, I, I never thought it would be this busy. Uh, I do not advertise whatsoever. Uh, we do lots and lots of cleaning and oils. We call it a COP. That's a clean oil and polish. Uh, my wife does a great job of cleaning saddles. It takes time. Uh, cleaning, uh, I love tooled saddles, but I don't like to clean tooled saddles. Tooled <laughs> saddles are very hard to clean. You got to get your toothbrush out. You got to get the air hose out. You got to really clean a tooled saddle. Now, a tooled saddle will last longer. Um, what is the reason a tooled saddle will last longer? Uh, when you tool that leather, it it meshes it down and makes it more dense, and it just seems to last longer. Um, a rough-out saddle or a plain saddle uh, seems like it doesn't last as long. Um, I, I love cleaning the cleaning the rough-out saddles I can do uh, because they're easier to clean. It goes a little faster. Um, but but my wife does all the cleaning, and I'm thankful for that. So uh, we don't use as much oil as we used to. A lot of people talk about Neat's Foot Oil, and uh, Neat's Foot Oil has been around forever. Um, and we do use some oil. Uh, I use an olive oil for new saddles. Uh, for anything new, we use an olive oil. Olive oil is a finer grade of oil. It's a, it's a better oil. It has no residue. Um, but now, uh, we recommend you clean your saddle at least once a year, twice a year if, if you're do- using it a lot and you're out in the weather. Um, but saddle butter is the thing now. Uh, they want you to use saddle butter. Um, inside and out. Uh, when we do a COP, we take it all the way down. We take everything apart that we can. Uh, we clean the conchos. I clean up under everything. And uh, it extends the life of your saddle tremendously. Um, a COP is, is, is kind of expensive, but when you see how much time it takes, and a new saddle nowadays is, is not cheap. You know, your basic saddle, handmade saddle, is going to start anywhere from twenty-two to twenty-five hundred. Tooling, show saddles, gets up to five thousand, six thousand, seven thousand for a for a fancy show saddle. Um, That's yeah. When you start talking those numbers, I mean, putting the the time into it to take care of it and make it last, it's it's something that you want to. You want to make sure you take care of because if you got that much money tied up in it, uh, 
it's certainly worth putting that that effort into it. Right, right. The, the great thing about what I do is is uh, it's still leather, but I work on a different different saddle every day. Um, it could be an English saddle, it could be a dressage saddle, it could be a roping saddle, it could be a cutting saddle, lots of barrel saddles. Uh, we buy and sell a few saddles, and, and uh, I always do a lot of safety checks. Uh, I, I love working on kids' saddles. I like helping get kids get started. Uh, if, if you're a kid and you need some saddle repair, nine times out of ten, I do it for nothing. That's awesome. Uh, uh I want to promote the Western way of life. Uh, I want to promote riding horses. And um, seems like that parents won't buy their children a nice saddle until they're serious. And when their kids get serious, bring it to me, let me clean it up. And a lot of times I do it for nothing. So, That's awesome. Uh, just to promote, you know, horse riding. And, and uh, actually met a guy yesterday, a teenager, Rides hunter jumpers very well. And I asked him how he got started riding horses. And he said, I just loved watching the Western movies when I was a kid. And he said, uh, I wasn't very good at school. And my parents told me if I would do better in school that they'd get me a horse. And he said... It was all the motivation he needed. <laughs> he said it wasn't very long before I had a horse. <laughs> and he's a very natural rider in... in uh, I got to visit with him yesterday, and, and he was just an awesome kid, you know. And, uh, I mean, that's one of the things I love, you know, so much in what I get to do every day is is exposing youth to this thing I'm so passionate about. And, and you know, we, we can all continue to enjoy it as we do, but if we don't keep the youth and the next generation getting into it, then it does die out. And... And it's continuing to, to fuel that fire in, in them and providing them with opportunities and, like you said, providing services for them to allow them to be able to afford to do it and, and the opportunities they need to get into it. Well, you know, in our society, there's not enough electricians. There's not enough plumbers. Um, uh, you know, like I said before, I've always been a guy that liked working with his hands, and, and I try to pass that on. You know, it's, it's just a little part of of what I do, um, used to when I roped a lot and there would be a kid out there behind the trailers roping the dummy, I'd give him a rope, you know, and, and that's not a lot, but that's, who knows what it takes to spark, you know, somebody else to, to change directions and be a part of the horse world. Absolutely. I mean, you know, just what you do, it's, you could certainly refer to it as a lost art that while there may be a bunch of people getting into the horse world, the some of the trades like saddle making and saddle repair there aren't a lot of young people coming up learning those things and you know, so often the cowboy gets referred to as a dying breed but as you and i talked about earlier just by sheer population numbers right now of just people on this planet there are probably more cowboys now than there ever have been uh they may look a little different than they used to but it's there are a lot of people getting involved in the horse world and there's these people getting involved with horses. They're going to need saddles. They're going to need saddles repaired. They're going to have to have somebody to take them to. And if we don't have somebody else coming along, learning how to do this, you know, all these old timers that have been doing it forever. When, when they stop, who are we taking our stuff to? Right. Exactly. Um, I, I enjoy 
um, helping people get started and um, uh, it, it's the, the, the saddle making is a, is a very interesting world and you got to kind of plan out how you're going to do this you got to have a set of patterns you cannot make anything without a set of patterns so, um, I've got patterns hanging all over the walls but uh, but anytime somebody comes in there and they start asking me questions uh, the next thing you know we've talked for an hour on how to get started and uh, how to wet leather and case it you got to case leather before you tool it and um, it, it, what, what would be the simplest way you would you would advise somebody if they wanted to start getting into it uh, I know like Tandy leather you can buy those little leather kits or something like that would you say hey go buy something like that and just kind of play around with it or yes yes my, my dad had a few leather tools when I was a kid but everybody starts with a Tandy startup kit Tandy has a really neat startup kit uh, that you can buy online and um it just gets you to making wallets and belts and uh, just anything to get started in leather and understand how leather works and and it just goes from there. I I, I got a lot of people on YouTube that I follow that make purses, uh, wallets, and it's shaving kits is getting to be a big thing. Leather rope bags. Uh, it just goes and goes. You know anything. To do with leather is um, is in demand. Um, leather is getting harder and harder to get because of the automotive business. Um, I got a letter from one of my suppliers, and he said the automotive business wants every piece of leather that they can get. Wow! Uh, so that's driving the demand up, you know. And uh, but leather will be around forever. Um, as, as long as we're eating beef, we'll have leather. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you talked about YouTube. I mean, that's that's one of the great things about now our technologically driven world is the the access for easy knowledge. Uh, you can, like you said, so many people you follow and and can learn from right at your computer. Uh, it's it's definitely while there are things about tech technology that frustrate us especially cowboys at times there are so many advantages to it and i guarantee if there's something you're wanting to learn how to do somebody's already posted a video of how to do it it's interesting uh, i mean you know you can find anything on social media or youtube but uh, i follow a saddle maker from texas and he has a young son that's five years old and and he thought if something happened to me my son would not know what I did for a living. He said, so I started videoing everything I do and posted it on YouTube. And he said, I never knew that it would take off. <laughs> but he posts a video every Monday morning about what he's got going on. And then a couple times a month, he'll post a YouTube video on how to do something. And it, he never dreamed that he would have the followers that he has. So. So it's interesting. Even learning how to be a cowboy is on YouTube. Yeah, no Dale Brisby. <laughs> well, cowboy is definitely, you could say cowboy is becoming cool again. Uh, I mean, not that it ever wasn't ever cool, but, you know, kids growing up in the 50s and 60s watching Roy Rogers and everybody wanted to be a cowboy. You watch John, the old John Wayne movies, but then kids growing up, you know, say the 90s, early 2000s, 
they they weren't really into it and stuff. They were, you know, oh, I want to be a football player or a basketball player or, you know, do this or that. Cowboy Kids didn't run around with six shooters on their hip, you know, pretending they're a cowboy anymore. But now, thanks to guys like Dale Brisby, uh, Yellowstone has been a, a huge proponent for showing people, hey, cowboys still exist. And it's a it's a drama, and it's there's some things that we could argue may or may not be super authentic, but there are also some things that are really authentic in that show. And it's I can't tell you how many people come up to me and are like, man, do you watch Yellowstone? And the the number of people that are not in the cowboy world at all that are all of a sudden being fascinated by our world again. Well, you know, Hollywood shows it a little different, but but I enjoy all of it. And uh, it's it, it's not just being a cowboy, it's being around horses. Uh, there's something about the horse that's good for the inside of man. Uh, yep. And I don't know if that was John Wayne that said I that. I think it was Winston Churchill. But some somebody said it, yes. And... Uh, um, you know, it, it's very neat to see a horse and a, especially a girl. I have two daughters. It's very special to see a horse connect with a person. And, um, the only way you can do that is to spend time with them. Uh, you can call it bonding. You can call it whispering. You can call it whatever you want to, but it's spending time with a horse. And, and I've been involved with the cerebral palsy, um, they used to have a horse riding program here in Collierville. Uh, I am currently involved with the Wounded Warrior Project. Um, I don't do a lot, but I do some stuff for them. Um, it's pretty neat that they take these wounded warriors and, and put them on a horse, and it just changes their whole world. And, and um, the, You can call it a cowboy, but the, but the only way you can do that is having a horse. You know, yep. it's, it's something about that horse. And we all see it. I mean, the the just any time spent with a horse is good for the soul. And I've had some of my best conversations with a horse. Just where I'm needing to work through stuff in my life, I can saddle one up and go for a ride out in the pasture and just talk to that horse. And he may not say anything back, but I he he's a darn good listener. Uh, and and you can, you can come back in kind of having a little bit of weight lifted off your shoulders for sure. Well, it, it's pretty neat. Um, you know, um, horses and cattle have been a part of my life since I was born, you know. And uh, I can remember a time when I didn't have a horse, and um, uh, it, it was not a good time in my life. You know, you can um, – when I was training horses, I got to be around some really neat people, you know, and uh, got to be around some movie stars. Uh, I got to know Wilford Brimley a little bit. He used to ride with us. and uh, He was in town here film, filming a movie back in the 90s. He was filming a movie called The Firm. Oh, yeah. And uh, we got to hang out with him. He was a pretty dang good roper. To Wilford, be a, Wilford was a farrier too, wasn't he? He grew up being a farrier. Uh, shot horses for some of the Hollywood actors, and they got him into acting. And uh, he came and hang out with with us for several months. Uh, and uh, he was good at telling stories, and that was pr- pretty pretty neat. Um, 
when we traveled showing horses, uh, I got to meet Buck Taylor, and uh, he was a, a neat guy too. Buck, and, Buck's actually been in a few episodes of Yellowstone here recently. He, yes, and it's um, uh, Buck Taylor is into watercoloring. Uh, I got some of his paintings in my house, and every time I look at them, you know, it, it, it tells you something different, and, and it's has to do with the horse. You know? Right. Um, it's. Uh, Pretty interesting to look in a horse's eye and and being around horses as long as I have, you can you can read their eyes and what's happening and what they're doing and and you're not only helping them, that's helping you too. So, <laughs> well, one of the things I want to talk about was just you know some of the stuff you make and how you know people will pay a lot more for handmade and custom and the difference in just versus going and buying something off the shelf or, you know, one of these tack companies. Uh, What I find is interesting is especially in the cowboy world, as opposed to a lot of the other hobbies and professions, is cowboys love handmade. They love custom. And so much of our gear is that. Uh, You know, I was out at the Four Sixes in Texas this past weekend and every one of those guys out there, every bit of their gear is custom handmade. Uh, from their the boots on their feet, the spurs and spur straps that are on those boots, the, the leggings, the shafts that they wear, they've either made themselves or bought from somebody else, a friend of theirs that made them. The belt, the knife on their hip, the, the hat that they wear is most likely a custom hat. The saddle on their horse is typically custom. The... The bridle and bit in that horse's mouth, it ain't just some bit. You know, it's a Kerry Kelly bit or whoever it is that guys are going to spend the money and get something that that they either, like I said, know the person that made it, made it themselves, or think very highly of the person that they know that did make it. Uh, and you compare that to other things like, I'll use golf as an example. I used to play a lot of golf. I don't care if you're on the PGA Tour, you might get like a golf bag that's custom with your name on it, but it's still made by one of the big companies, whether it's, you know, Ping or Callaway or whatever, your your driver that's in your golf bag. That ain't, you know, handmade. It's it's made by one of these big companies. Uh, your, your golf shoes, they're one of your big companies. They may be Nike golf shoes. Your, the glove on your hand you bought at the pro shop or something. It's it's so different than our industry where, you know, like like I said, the, the whether it's the boots on my feet or, the, you know, my saddle or my bit. I, I love when I can go put a bridle on my horse and I can look at that head stall and know, yeah, Tommy made this head stall. Right, right. Uh, well, we, we only use the best. Uh, you know, that everybody says that, but I use all stainless steel hardware. Um, when I make a pair of reins, I cut them both side by side out of the same piece of leather and – that makes a difference, you know. It, it to somebody that doesn't know leather, thinks it doesn't mean anything. But when you cut out a pair of reins, you cut them out right beside each other, have the same height of leather, and um, they feel better. The thickness is better, and um, those are only things that you, it takes a while to learn all that stuff, unless you have somebody teaching you. You know, um, everybody advertises their stuff as being hand-rubbed edges. Uh, hand-rubbed edges is very, very important. And um, when you hand-rub those edges, it takes time. 
Um, those edges have got to be slicked, and that keeps the weather from getting in that particular edge. It keeps the water from getting in, and in return, it makes them last longer. It makes them feel better. Um, you can tell a custom saddle just by looking at the edges. Um, the, the edges have got to be hand rubbed, and there's only one way to do that, you know, and it, it just takes time. But um, good leather is... You know, we talked about that. It's getting harder and harder to find. Um, uh, when I was a kid, working with my dad and my brothers, we loved Brandon. <laughs> Brandon cattle. Everybody had their own brand. But now, I do not like Brandon now because it messes up a hide of leather, you know, and you got to cut around it. And um, Cattle are, seem like they're growing a little faster nowadays, and the leather has a little more wrinkles in it just because of the cattle are growing, getting fed better. Um, it's, uh, so in the custom world, it, it takes a little more time and especially being a small shop like we are, um, in, in, you kind of have to charge for that. Um, uh, making saddles one at a time is, is not the way to do it. They want you to make two at a time. If you make two at a time, you can be working on one saddle while it's drying or the, uh, you're wetting another piece of leather, then you can skip over to the other saddle and, and you can be working on that, and, and that's the way you make money. Um, how, how many hides does it, does it take per saddle? It, on an average, it, it takes a whole steer. So when I buy leather, I buy a side at a time. And uh, so it takes two sides to make a saddle. So... Um, and what, what's a side going for right now? Uh, just depends on where you get it. Um, they're, the good leather, the heavy leather that I like to use, that, that the Cowboys like, it's 160, 170, 180 a hide. Um, and that, that's with no blemishes. Um, my buying power is, is not as good as some of the buying <laughs> power, but... Uh, uh, my leather budget is about $500 a month, you know, um, and I try to find it on sale. But um, your good leather comes out of St. Louis, Missouri. It's Herman Oak. Um, anybody in the cowboy world knows knows that word, Herman, oh, yeah. Oak, Herman Oak leather, you know, because... Uh, what, what, what does Herman Oak mean? Um, Herman is the family that um, started this tannery years and years and years ago. Um, I don't remember the exact date, but oak, um, when the Indians were tanning leather, they did what they call brain tanning. They, it was a chemical in the brain uh, that you can rub on the leather and tan. Uh, Mexican leather is, used to be a lot of salt involved, not so much nowadays in tanning leather, but Herman Oak, there was an extract in the oak bark that they boiled down and somebody figured out that, that could, you could tan leather that way. So that's where the Herman Oak came from. And then, and then there was also a tanning process called bark tanning. And it has to do with the bark of a certain oak tree that was boiled down. And they got this extract out of it. And the thing about Herman Oak leather is it has very few blemishes. It's strong, but then it's good to cut. Um, you can take some imported leather and be cutting, and all of a sudden you'll just hit a rock, and it, your knife will just stop, and, and that was from the tanning process. Um, a lot of chemicals involved with tanning. Um, 
Herman Oak has several chemists on staff, and um, if you lose one of your chemists at the tannery, you're in trouble uh, because not everybody knows how to tan leather. Of course, they've got man-made products now, and they've got formulas, but um, uh, this leather world, from what I understand, don't share a whole lot of technology. Uh, they kind of keep it close, and uh, a lot of chemicals involved, and uh, Herman Oak actually has a tour in St. Louis, Missouri. It's very interesting. I have not been able to go yet, but I've watched it on YouTube. It's very interesting on how they tan leather. Um, EPA is, is keeping an eye on them, as they should, on tanning leather. A lot of chemicals involved in, um, uh, to get the hair off. Uh, it's, it, it takes time. You know, and um, rawhide trubber trees have been around forever. Um, rawhide is exactly what it says. It's rawhide, and it hasn't been tanned. And uh, when you first get a rawhide tree in out of a box, it stinks. It's green. <laughs> it, it hasn't dried yet. But uh, rawhide is a interesting product it never stops drying it 20 years from now rawhide will still be shrinking wow you know um you can wet rawhide and stretch it and just do crazy things with it and and then when it dries it, it is it's hard as a rock and um I actually do a little bit of a tree repair um they don't if you have a tree that's broken or damaged uh you not a whole lot of repair you can do, um, but there is a few little things that I do that uh, some other saddle makers have shared with me on how to repair trees. And um, I just recently uh, watched and read an article about the cowboys in Florida, the cowboys in, on the coast in Texas. Um, they swim a lot of cattle. Just to this day, they still swim cattle to get them out when a hurricane comes. And a rawhide tree, you don't really use in that part of the world because that saddle gets wet. And when it dries, uh, they'll complain about it. The tree will be loose while it's wet. And then you let it dry and it seems like it's fine, but it's never gonna be exactly the same again. So um, when there, a hurricane comes in and then the cowboys gotta move cattle, I mean, they'll swim cattle for two weeks, you know, trying to get them out of those places. Good for you. And so now they're going with different kind of covering for those cowboys. Um, there's a Kevlar coating um, that works really good for damp conditions like that. Um, fiberglass, um, everything will be fiberglass before too long. I got in two fiberglass trees uh, last week from a place in Texas and they look great. Um, a lot of the fiberglass is coming out of the airline industry and they're, we're copying some of the ways that they build airplanes. And, uh, okay. Uh, one day there will be no more rawhide trees. Finding somebody to to do that is tough. <laughs> so it's not a, a fun job. But uh, uh, the saddles are just like everything else. They're changing with the times. But uh, uh, horses are changing, uh, as you know. Uh, well, talk about just some of the changes you've seen in saddles over you know, the last 20, 30 years. I mean, the the styles have certainly changed. Uh, you know, guys like Ray Hunt introduced, you know, kind of the Wade saddle. And, I mean, trends have changed, styles have changed. Talk a little bit about that. 
it's interesting. Different part of the world's like different type saddles. You, you know, you you go out west, uh, and it's a lot a lot of wades, and wades are very comfortable. Uh, you go down in Texas, and they'll laugh at you if you ride a wade saddle. Uh, <laughs> that's not the cowboy way, you know. Um, um, saddle fit is a big thing now. It's a buzzword, and, and whenever we sell saddles uh, on social media, everybody want to know what's the gullet width. And uh, there's no way to measure the gullet width after the saddle has been made. Uh, there's abs- it just You cannot do it. And there's... A lot of people will argue with you about gullet width, gullet height, and um, but fit is important because horses are changing, and um, your horse can be fat in the summertime. It can be leaner in the wintertime. Uh, when I was a kid, the bulldog, heavy muscled horses, was everywhere. You don't see too many of them now. They're coming back. But um, saddles has got to change with the horses. Um, well, and, and people get so caught up in, well, this, I want this saddle to fit this horse. And especially cowboy saddles, heck, we're riding so many different horses. And like you said, every one of them is a little bit different. You want it to fit well, but it's got to fit a variety of horses. Right, right, right. Well, you know, the, the bottom of the saddle fits the horse and the top of the saddle fits the rider. And, and I say that a lot. Uh, it's, it's a buzzword that I'm trying to spread around. Um, I had a young young girl came and bought a saddle last week. Didn't know her. We knew a friend of a friend, and she said, can I take this saddle home and try it on my horse? And I said, absolutely. I said, you take it. I don't know you, but I, I could just tell. The horse people are, are honest people, and the horse world is small. And But I recommend that you take a saddle and try it. Um, the uh, seat size, everybody wants to talk about seat size, but the seat size really, it matters, but you got to ride it. you got to take it home and ride it, and I don't have a problem with you taking one of my saddles home and riding it. Uh, um, trail riders is big, you know, now. Trail riding's been big since late 80s, early 90s, and I used to think it was a fad, but it, it's it's still around. And... The thing about trail riders that I have to tell myself is when I go ride, I ride for an hour, I change horses, change saddles, I start all over on another horse. But they're riding the same horse and the same saddle for eight, ten hours. And they said, well, it hurts me here and here. And I says, well, I don't understand that. But when you go on a trail ride and you're riding for eight hours, if there's something wrong with that saddle, if it doesn't fit you, it's going to show up somewhere, <laughs> you know. Um, here, too, lately, um, women are made a little different. Their seat bones are different. Their back and the way they sit in a saddle is a little bit different than a man. Um, um, women are a big part of the trail riders, a big part of the horse world altogether. And uh, I've been actually doing some studying. I uh, had a lady sent me... Uh, some um, pictures of, of women's spines and compared to men, and it's pretty interesting. Uh, so it's changing. Um, actually, I have a real good friend that comes to my place at least once every two weeks and sits on every saddle that I'm preparing. <laughs> and um, her and I are really good friends, and she'll call me. She said, what do you got in here this week? And I'll tell her. She said, I want to sit in it. 
you know. So you can come to my shop and sit in 20 different saddles, and that, that's no joke. So um, the saddle that I ride, you may not like it whatsoever. Uh, but then again, you may love it. But uh, it, it's interesting that people like different things, and, and you, you've got to stop long enough. And I'm pretty good about not stopping and not slowing down, you know. But when somebody comes in there, i got to stop and go sit in this saddle. You know, go sit in that saddle. What do you like about this one? What do you don't like about this one, you know? Let's say somebody just getting into the horse world and they're, you know, not really sure totally what direction they're going to go yet. They're just starting to get into riding. They may be doing a little bit of trail riding. They're, you know, started taking some lessons and stuff. The trying to find a saddle that I think a lot of people just getting into the horse world and people outside of the horse world don't really realize there's so many different type saddles out there that for depending on what you're doing, whether you're cutting, you're team roping, you're ranching, you're barrel racing, calf roping, whatever it is, there's so many different styles of saddles. And then what, what direction would you steer somebody just getting into it? You know, great question. You know, when, when I was growing up, it was all saddles, you know, it was, um, cutting saddles and roping saddles. There was nothing in between, you know. A long time ago, the barrel racers rode cutting, you know, rode roping saddles, you know, because that's all that was out there. But uh, it, it's just like anything else. Everything's specialized. Um, um, I, anybody getting into it, you know, kind of figure out which discipline you're going to go with and then start researching. Uh, there's lots and lots of information out there on, uh, on the Internet about saddles and talk to your friends Try one of your friend's saddles, um, and and you 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 mentioned prices earlier on what people are going to pay for a good saddle, and I don't want that to scare anybody that might be wanting to get into the horse world and realize you don't have to go spend three thousand dollars on a saddle. That there are, you know, you could go. You're getting into barrel racing. You can go spend five hundred dollars, six hundred dollars on a used barrel saddle and get in something that'll that'll last for a little while. Right. Right. I have people texting me. It's it's interesting. They people I don't even know send me a picture of the saddle. I say, what do you think? You know, and and I'll tell them what little I can or bring it to me. Let me look at it. Uh, but once again, you just need to take it and ride it. And if it fits your horse, great. If it fits you, it's even better. You know, but we we got to fit both the horse and the rider. And um, but. A lot of, you know, again, there's a lot of information out there. Of course, I, I, my phone is on all the time. I, I talk to people about saddles every day, you know, because that's, that's what we do. But uh, um, if, if I got a saddle that you like and you want to try it, come get it, you know. Um, saddle fit is a, is a big, big thing now. Um, but uh, I have ways to measure a horse's back. Um, I can do a saddle fit and... And I can fit your saddle and what kind of pad you're going to use. I mean, there's a lot of dimensions there that people don't think about. Um, but but we, we do a lot of saddle fits, and, and then we can go from there. You know, if, I kind of know the, the makers of saddles, and you can call me and say, well, what does XY saddle fit like? And I say, well, it fits pretty good, you know. Um, we try to, the, the saddle company has no continuity. So saddle company over here, this semi-quarter horse bars could measure this, and the saddle company over here on the left, the semi-quarter horse bars would measure something different. So there's very little continuity. So, again, you just got to try them and, 
and um, I, I've rejected some saddles. You know, um, if it doesn't fit your horse, first of all, when you first put it on there, there's no point in you getting on it. You know, you're wasting your time. You're wasting my time. But, uh, um, but well, I, I've seen you do some cool things with some saddles. Where if somebody comes across one they like, you know, trophy saddles are one of those things that a lot of people come across where. Somebody's selling or getting rid of an old trophy saddle, and you may be like, wow, I like the saddle, but I really don't want it, you know, to say, you know, 1995 barrel racing champion on it. Right. And I've seen you just flip that seat inside out where, hey, it's now a rough out seat and it no longer says that, but it's still the same saddle. Right. That's a lot of what we do is is re- refurbishing saddles. Uh, I'm working on one right now. Um, if you got a saddle that you like and it fits your horse, and we'll strip it down to the bare tree and start all over, you know. And, and uh, that's the cool thing is if you find something that you like and fits your horse, you don't you don't. It's like having a good pair of tennis shoes. You don't want to let them go, you know. Uh, I wear a pair of cowboy boots till they just ragged because they feel good, you know. So if you get a saddle that feels good, we definitely do a lot of rebuilds. A lot of changing fenders. We do a lot of shortening of fenders. If if you got a saddle that fits you, and your child wants to ride it, we can cut those fenders down. Uh, we do a lot of that to to help them get started. And uh, it, it's always um, it's always neat to see somebody bring a saddle in that was their dad's or their granddad's. And, um, that, it, that was one of the coolest things you ever did for me was when I brought you my, my grandfather's saddle from when he was a kid. We, uh, my dad and I found it in the barn on my grandparents' old ranch in Texas, and it had been sitting and hanging in that barn for God knows how many years. But he, he rode it in a lot in the 20s and 30s when he was a kid, and, but then it had just been sitting there. And we brought it home, and then it sat in the garage for another 20 years. Uh, and then I decided, you know, that's something I want to get fixed up for Dad for Christmas. So I brought the saddle to you, and it you took what was an old saddle that meant a lot to us to, to hang on to, and I said, you know, I, I want to get it, if you can, back in shape where I can still put it back on a horse, cinch it up, and at the time my, my nephew was getting ready to be born. And I said, I would love for... Uh, when he's old enough to be able to have the first butt that sits back in this saddle be my grandfather's great-grandson. And so that that's a very sentimental thing that you did a fantastic job with. Yeah, yeah, well, thanks. We do, we do a lot of that, and it's neat to do that because, um, you, you know, you're, it's a lot of family memories and heirlooms. Um, I have a little display in my shop of, Stuff that I'd won over the years and roping and uh, showing horses. And I got the saddle sitting there that I rode when I was a kid. And, uh, you know, like I said before, I had three older brothers and this saddle belonged to my oldest brother and it got passed down. And I was the last one to get it. And uh, it's still in good shape, still rideable. uh, And it's neat to people come in there and they say, well, what is that old thing? And I said, that was mine, you know. And... uh, It'll be handed down to my grandkids one day, and and uh, we're trying to get them started. But um, love the leather thing is just—it's very interesting, and it's never a dull day. So um, you, you don't know who's going to walk in the door. 
Um, I got a doctor's bag in there about a month ago, and this doctor's bag dated back to the 1800s. And it was still in the same family. And this guy's niece was graduating from medical school this year, and he wanted me to, to do it. We didn't want to rebuild it. We didn't want to change a whole lot. We just wanted to patch it up so it wouldn't fall apart. And um, it was a tough project, but it was very interesting, and it was a good conversation piece when people came in. And, and uh, I took my time. And um, on something old like that, you wet it and, and try to get it really soft before you do anything to it, you know, because... Um, Something that old that hasn't been taken care of, it just falls apart, you know. Right. And so um, uh, there's ways that you can wet it and hand sew it. And, and uh, when I got through with it, the, the guy just loved it, and it was pretty neat that it was going to get passed down. So, well, What's the strangest thing you've ever had somebody bring you wanting to work on? Um, that was the coolest thing and that I remember. Um, I used to joke with everybody that I didn't do women's purses, but... <laughs> um, uh, I've been doing some women's purses here lately. A lot of your name brand purses, they, they won't hardly take them back. And if they, the factory loses a lot of them, so they end up bringing them to me. If it needs a snap or a buckle or handles, you know, I do stuff like that. Um, I had a pair of English riding boots that was in there oh, sometime in September of this year. And uh, very, very nice leather I asked the lady, I said, the zipper was broke. She wanted me to change the zipper, which I did. And I said, what these boots worth? And she said, um, over $1,000. And I said, They're, they cost $1,000? She said, yes, these are very nice boots. <laughs> so I was a little nervous, uh, took my time and replaced the zippers. And uh, so, but you never know. Uh, never know what comes through the door so uh, I uh, I enjoy talking to the people and you know finding out how it all got started and how they got started riding horses and, uh, so when you come to my shop it's more than just working on saddles so uh, uh, it's um, it's been good so I, I don't have very far to walk out of the house to get to work and um, I, I feel like I can do this you know another 15, 20 years, you know. Um, I'm hoping that I'll pass it down. I don't know what my daughters will do with all my stuff, but <laughs> <laughs> we got a long way to go yet. So, Well, Tommy, if, if someone's wanting to, to get with you on having you build a saddle or bring one to you for repair, what's the best way to get in contact with you? Well, just call me on my cell phone and leave me a message. It's 901-336-4484. Of course, um, Social media, um, I have a little Facebook site called Tommy's Custom Tech. Um, I try to post a few things. Uh, I won't let my wife post a whole lot um, when I get behind. Christmas is coming, so I try not to take a whole lot of orders for Christmas. I do take some, but um, I've got two custom saddles waiting on me to, to get made and uh, but uh, definitely call or uh, send us a messenger on Facebook, and and we like to try to help people get the right saddle. Uh, there's a couple other people in town that do what I do, but uh, and they're busy, and and uh, that's always a good thing. And uh, COVID has 
really not slowed down the horse world that I know of. Um, uh, the horses have still got to be fed. You still got to bell hay and put up hay and uh, just do the best you can as far as the COVID deal. But uh, but uh, give us a call and we'd be glad to help you out. That's awesome. Well, Tommy, it's been a pleasure talking with you and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. All right. Thanks, man. All righty. Since the recording of this podcast, Sandy Neargaard, Tommy's dear wife, went home to be with the Lord. We want to dedicate this episode in her memory. She touched a lot of lives and will be greatly missed. Please continue to keep Tommy and the rest of their family in your prayers. God bless and thanks for joining us.